Well, good morning, everyone. I know that uh, many of you are probably in town visiting family for graduation, and we're glad you're here. Um, my prayer is that you feel like as you spend time here this morning that your family just expanded. As you meet brothers and sisters in Christ, that you feel welcome, that you feel safe, and that, that you really look at this as a time to worship together, um, as we will one day in heaven, uh, as we stand uh, before the Lord our Savior. So, There's a famous pastor by the name of Donald Barnhouse. You may uh, recognize his name. He tells a story of a conversation that he had with another religious leader of his day. They would cross paths from time to time because they ministered uh, in the same neighborhood. And because of that, they became good friends and had some meaningful conversations through the years. One particular conversation that uh, uh, I want to tell you about this morning revolved around the topic of prayer. The other man illustrated his perspective by telling this story. He says, let's just say that I wanted to have a meeting with the President of the United States. He said, I couldn't just walk up to the White House, knock on the front door, and expect to have a conversation. There's a certain protocol that needs to be followed in order for me to gain access I might need to talk to somebody in Congress or, or visit with a member of his cabinet. Some, somehow for someone to, to make a meeting possible for me to meet with the president. And he says, that's how I see prayer. That there's a, a certain protocol and a process that we go through in order to gain access to God. Dr. Barnhouse listened patiently and then responded kindly. He said, my dear friend. He says, I see it differently. He said, because let's say I'm the president's son. I live in the White House. That's my home. I eat breakfast with the president. I give him a hug when he leaves for the day. I don't need to ask for permission to have a conversation with the president because that's my dad. And I believe it's the same with prayer. Because we're a co-heir with Christ. We are a child of the king. And we have direct access to our Heavenly Father. And prayer is ultimately a conversation with someone who delights for us to be in His presence. It's an important illustration because I believe this is the same idea that the writer of Hebrews has been trying to help us understand in the last few weeks. As he's been talking about this idea of Jesus being a perfect high priest, which I understand with the cultural differences, it, it may not mean as much to us, but it certainly would have meant a great deal to his Hebrew audience. And here's why. The high priest was the one responsible for giving God's people access to God. And that high priest, as we know, as we look at the Old Testament, followed a, a very strict protocol in how he approached God's throne on behalf of the people. But, but the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us understand that Jesus brings something better. This morning, he'll talk about how we have a better hope. Being able to draw near to the throne of grace, into the very presence of God with confidence. He'll talk about how we have a better covenant. A covenant that takes that, that heart of stone, stone corrupted by sin and gives us a, a heart of flesh because we have a better sacrifice in Jesus who was able to give one sacrifice for the forgiveness of all sins for all who believe for all time. 
by faith, we become members of God's family, co-heirs with Christ, direct access to the Heavenly Father, because we have been clothed in righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, and God delights for us to be in his presence. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word, would you help us see that truth more clearly this morning? And in doing so, would, it, would, would, it just, would you allow it, Lord, to, to be so inviting, to, to be so encouraging and comforting that, that in the days of the week ahead, that that would be something that our heart would long for, just the, the privilege of being in your presence. That we would appreciate through the truth of your word this morning how and why that was made possible. May it teach us to, to grow deeper in our love and in our affections for you, knowing the depth of your love and affections for us. Lord, by the power of your spirit, will you speak through the truth of your word to the hearts of your people, to the praise and glory of your name. Amen. All right, turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and uh, would love for you to read along with me, beginning in verse 18, as Paul continues his conversation about Jesus being that perfect high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he says in verse 18, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing about of a new, a better hope through which we draw near to God. Hopefully you remember from last week that Jesus didn't come to update an old system. He came to do something new. Because that old system, as we see in our passage this morning, was never intended to be a means of salvation. It was an imperfect system that pointed towards the promise of a permanent solution. But it never had the power to accomplish that solution on its own. Kind of a silly example, but it'd be like someone taking batting lessons, hoping and expecting that they would never strike out again. (laughs) Which no matter how many lessons they had and no matter how hard they might try, they're going to strike out. In the same way, no one who practices the law will ever be made perfect by the law. It's just not possible because that was not its purpose. So as we see back in verse 12, we looked at that last week. It says that that a change had to be made. And we're learning that Jesus is the one who brought about that change. Again, to use the same illustration... Instead of taking batting lessons, we need Jesus to be a designated hitter because we're going to strike out every time we step up to the plate. There's going to be times that we fail and miss and and don't come through, but that's not true for him. He's perfect. He bats a thousand, and we need him to step in our place to do what we cannot do on our own. Verse 18 tells us that this former commandment was set aside for something better. It says that that Old Testament law was replaced because of its weakness and uselessness. But we must be careful here. Because what it is not saying is that 
It's not saying that the law had no, no purpose and value in God's plan. What it's saying is that the law was weakless, weak and useless as it relates to salvation. Because that's not what the law was intended to accomplish. The law was given to expose our sin and to reveal our need for a Savior. Paul understood that. In Romans chapter 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Of course not. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. See, there it is. It was given to expose, to, to reveal our sin. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall covet, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is death. The law sheds light on our sin and reveals our need for a Savior. And the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to see that Jesus is that Savior. And he came to bring a better hope. A hope, as we see in verse 19, that allows us to draw near to God. Now, once again, there's a cultural gap here because a statement like that would have been jaw-dropping to a Hebrew audience. Because their whole cultural experience led them to believe just the opposite. If you take the temple as an example. The temple was designed based on protective barriers. Barriers that prevented direct access to God. And the reason was because sinful man simply cannot survive in the presence of a holy God. So if we, we look at that temple, we get a picture of what this audience would have expected because outside the walls, as you will be, be able to see in the, in the picture here, is the Gentile courtyard. Okay? In that courtyard, pretty much anyone could congregate. You could have Jews, you could have Gentiles, you could have males, you could have females. But there was a barrier, and that barrier prevented Gentiles from moving any closer beyond that point. Only Jewish males and Jewish females could enter into what was known as the outer courtyard. But then there was another barrier, only allowing Jewish men to move beyond that point. Jewish women were, were not allowed to go through that gate, but even Jewish men could not enter into the holy place. It had to be a Jewish priest. But then there was another barrier. The final barrier, that, that veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where God's presence resided and only the high priest and only one time of year could enter beyond that veil into that space on the Day of Atonement. But what we learn from Scripture and what the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to, to help us understand is that Jesus came for a better hope and he did so by removing all these barriers and dividing walls that prevent access to God, including, by the way, that final barrier, giving us access into God's very presence. Mark talks about this in his gospel when it relays a a statement that was made whenever Jesus died on the cross. It says in chapter 15, verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and look at what happened. Then the veil of the temple 
that final barrier between sinful man and holy God was torn from top to bottom. Because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and we can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. We draw near to the presence of God. Because Jesus accomplished what the law could never do. He brings a better hope. A hope of being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at how he continues in verse 20. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. See, we can draw near to God because Jesus brings a better hope that is ultimately based on this better covenant. But before we understand the benefit of something new, I think it's important for us to appreciate the limitations of what was old. Because the Old Testament did serve a valuable, although limited, purpose. And if you'll remember, it began with a fairly simple list of Ten Commandments. This is what we recognize when, G when Moses came down from the mountain carrying those two tablets with the Ten Commandments. And they were intended to be used by God to help guide and instruct His people on what it means to love Him and to, to love others. But we also know that before the paint had time to dry on those two commandments, or those ten commandments, they were already breaking them. They built a golden calf and then worshipped it. They sinned against the God who had made himself known to them. And so as a result, God gave them more laws and more instruction about what it means to, to love him and, and to love others. And as you might expect, they, they broke those too. And this cycle continues through the first five books of the Bible until ultimately we come to, to some 613 commands. But, but Moses and the prophets all understood that the heart of the problem is not the law. The heart of the problem is a problem with a heart. Jeremiah speaks of that in chapter 16, verse 9, when he says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Ezekiel describes it in, in, in terms that we can kind of picture. He says that, that mankind has a heart of stone, a, a hard heart. That's our problem. And so that means that the new covenant that Jesus brings has to address that problem. And it does. Ezekiel describes the, the new covenant this way in chapter 36, verse 26. He says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that's soft, a heart that's sensitive to God's word, God's truth. See, G Jesus didn't come to improve the old law. Jesus came to transform our heart to address that is the core issue. He did for us what the law could never 
do. He is a priest forever, perfectly fulfilling God's purpose in the world. Look at what it says in verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, see God ordained the Old Testament priesthood for a purpose. And only those, as we talked about last week, born in the tribe of Levi could, could fulfill that purpose as God intended. But they were imperfect people, offering imperfect sacrifices for a limited period of time. It's kind of like the battery on your car, right? It serves a really important purpose. In fact, you can't go anywhere without it, can you? But as our family learned this week, eventually that battery is going to die and you only have one choice at that time, you just got to replace it. Well, in the same way, we know that the Old Testament priesthood was not permanent. Yes, it had a very important purpose, but that purpose was limited, and those priests were frail, and at some point they would die, and you just had to replace them with another one. But that purpose was necessary because they helped us understand what it looks like to have a, a humble heart of dependence before God. To, to look to a solution that God promised that the law could never fulfill on its own. Therefore, it says that Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God. Those high priestly roles were never intended to be permanent, but the one that Jesus fulfilled is. He is a priest forever. Here's another thing I think we can find comfort in. It tells us that, that Jesus lives to give intercession continually on our behalf. Jesus saves forever. And I hope that when you hear that, it brings great comfort to see that the security of your salvation is in God's promise and not in your performance. Jesus saves forever those who draw near to God. Day by day, moment by moment, for all eternity. And he's always making intercession on our behalf. And I think there's a, a very helpful and interesting comparison with what we see happening in the Old Testament. Because that high priest was intended to be a representative before God on behalf of the people. We learn in Exodus chapter 28, verse 29, that Aaron, it says, shall carry the names of the sons of Israel, representing the people, in the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he enters that holy, that sacred space of God's presence for a memorial before the Lord continually. So did you get that? It, it was a breastplate of judgment because that's what the people of God deserve if not for the mercy of God that spared them. But Jesus Christ took the judgment upon himself. He, he, he wore the penalty of our sins when he was pierced for our transgressions. He took that punishment that we ultimately deserved. And having been raised from the dead, 
He is seated at the right hand of God, making an atonement for our sins. Isaiah 49, 16. In fact, we, we sang this in one of the songs this morning. Based on this verse, says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. That's how he represents his people. Making intercession for those who put their trust in him. And if you want to know, if you ever wondered, oh, come on, what was the intercession of Jesus is like? What was he praying? Then go to John 17. Because what you'll find in John 17 is what is known as the high priestly prayer, giving you an example of what that prayer on your behalf would look like. And what you're going to find there is that it is a prayer for unity, that, that it is a prayer for security and protection. It is a prayer that you would live a life made possible in Christ that, like his, would bring glory to God in this world. He's praying, ultimately, for you to live in accordance with what he accomplished. That's what his prayer is. Look at how he continues in verse 26. It says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, the promise, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So in Jesus we have a better hope because of a better covenant, and it's all made possible because of a better sacrifice. In these three verses, the author is going to help us understand why that was possible. And he begins in verse 26 by, by describing the flawless character of Christ. He says that he is the perfect high priest because he is holy. He is set apart for God's purpose and loyal to fulfill that purpose. He says that he is innocent, meaning that he is pure and he is blameless. He is without evil. He is without wrong motives. It says that he is undefiled, uncorrupted, unblemished by sin. That he's separate from sinners. He's still sharing in our human weakness because as we've learned in Hebrews, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That he is exalted above the heavens, seated at the right hand of God, beyond all earthly limitations. And boy, we could camp out on that verse alone for a really long time, but just for the sake of comparison, think about the descriptions there and let it impress upon you that there is no possible way that any of the former priests would ever line up to those expectations, would they? Because in order to be a perfect sacrifice, Jesus must possess no imperfections. He must be perfect. That was not true of any of the priests that came before him, but it is undeniably true of Jesus. First, we see that quality of his, uh, of, of his character, but then we also see the effectiveness of his sacrifice. Because unlike the priest before him, he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he offered one in behalf of the people. You see, that was the requirement of the Old 
Testament priests. They, they were required to, to offer a sacrifice for their own sin before they could ever step in there and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And not only that, it was, it was a never-ending job. It's try, kind of like trying to wash your car in the presence of a rainstorm. I mean, there's no possible way you're ever going to have a dry spot in an environment that's continually wet. In the same way that you're never going to have the forgiveness of any substantial amount when they're in the presence of continuing sin. But because of the sinless character of Jesus, he offered only one sacrifice for sin. Where the Old Testaments did it year after year after year, a sacrifice that only revealed their sin but had no power to remove it, it tells us that Jesus made atonement once for all time. Verse 28 tells us how. It says that Jesus was a priest appointed to do what the law could never do. But as we've talked about, that wasn't its purpose. The law was never intended to be a means of salvation. The sacrifice revealed the presence of sin, but could not remove it. Jesus offers a better sacrifice, fulfilling what they call in the passage a divine oath, but ultimately it's just a promise. A promise to be that permanent solution that the law was ultimately pointing to. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Made for all sin, for all time, for all who believe. Not repeated, but once, forever. He was willing to lay down his life, shedding his blood for our sins. And I think we could probably all agree that as we listen to this, it's fairly easy to accept the perfection of what we see in Jesus Christ. But we're also quick to recognize that you and I are still a work in progress, aren't we? Prone to sin. Just like we sing in the, the hymn, we're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So, let's ask ourselves, how does, how does this passage bring comfort in light of that reality? And I believe this is a really important question because we always behave based on what we believe. And if we believe that, that we are sinners, we are dirty, that we're defiled, then this idea of, of purity is an impossible goal. Unrealistic expectation. But if we are holy and blameless, then we can have a desire to live out of this identity. Instead of sinning and saying, well, what did you expect? I'm just, a, I'm just a sinner. We still fail. But in response, we say, no. That's not who I am. Romans 12.1 says this. It says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In our passage this morning, we have been learning how Jesus offers this perfect sacrifice for our sins. A single sacrifice that saves forever. A sacrifice sufficient to forgive our sins, allowing us to draw near to the presence of God, escorted, if you will, into the throne room by Jesus Christ Himself. 
interceding on our behalf. Just get that picture in your head. And it's only possible to stand in the presence of a holy God if you and I have been made holy ourselves. But that's what Romans 12.1 is saying is true. In the same way that the sacrifice of Jesus was holy and acceptable in the eyes of God, which Scripture clearly says it is, so is our life and our service to Him holy and acceptable. In fact, 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a royal priesthood. Think about that in light of what we've been learning in Hebrews. What have we said has been one of the most unique descriptions of Jesus in all of Scripture? That He is both a priest and a king. And as His child, you are also a royal priesthood representing him. That's why he tells the Corinthians that we are ambassadors for Christ. Get this, as if God were making an appeal through us, just like he did through his son. And in Ephesians has another breathtaking statement in light of what we see in our passage this morning when it says that we wear a, get this, breastplate of righteousness. Did you catch it? Not a breastplate of judgment that the Old Testament priests wore when they walked into the presence of God standing before the mercy seat of God. Instead, you and I wear a breastplate of righteousness because we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, which is why we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Not fear and trembling, but confidence. You have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's who you are. And if that's what you believe, it dramatically transforms how you live. And and I want you to hear this very clearly. We are not defined by our mistakes. We are defined by Christ's accomplishments. We're not defined by our mistakes We are defined by Christ's accomplishment. We we are growing in Christ, increasingly becoming everything He recreated us to be, holy and blameless in His sight. And what we believe transforms how we live as we live out of the identity of who we are in Christ. So this morning I have a privilege for you to, to hear from one of our own as she shares with you her story of transformation, and what it means for her to live out of this identity of a new life in Christ. And so if you will, please give Randa your attention and look forward to what you have to share. Well, thank you guys. It's really an honor to be able to come up here and tell you what God has done. I get three minutes, so bear with me. My name is Randa, and I am walking in a new life with Christ. I am recovering from fearing man more than God, and also pride. If you were to know me a few years ago, you would have, and looked beyond the facade of me looking like I had it all together, you would have found me insecure in who I was, lonely, discontent with life, and ravenously seeking to know my purpose. 
I desired to mature in my faith and to find joy in my life, but I felt like there was this barrier between me and God. And I prayed for him to reveal what was missing. And faithfully, um, I started to hear stories. I just lost my faith place. I started to hear stories and testimonies from people who I've known my whole life, but I never knew this side of them. Um, and their stories started to sound quite familiar, empty, stuck, lost. But then they started talking about how the Holy Spirit was radically changing them and how they were finding freedom. They described the process as a deep dive into the gospel, a discipleship program that teaches who God is, who you are, and helps you to identify the idols that keep you from experiencing the life that God has invited you into. So God brought together me with this team of fellow strugglers and he began showing us that we are powerless to overcome our brokenness of our sin patterns in our own strength and that God is the only one who can change this. I saw how much, how little I was trusting him and how much I was trying to control everything. We were led to explore past pains, hurts, and sins, and I saw the long-lasting effects of how my destructive thoughts and habits were holding me back. I never had ever examined my life in this way before, and I could see from all of that the passionate pursuit of God in my heart to know my heart, and I realized the weight of my sin and what Jesus had died for. God showed me that I was missing intimacy with him and others because I was spending all of my energy worrying about what people thought of me, finding their approval, and fearing failure. I saw that I had been questioning God's goodness because I didn't understand why he made me so differently. But the Holy Spirit faithfully mended those areas by opening my eyes to see the good in all of those differences and how they fit into his purpose for me. This resulted in me trusting the Lord more and believing that he is the true source to find my worth and my value, which helped minimize the pursuit of finding it in other people and open the doors to actually having healthy relationships with others. I'm a work in progress, just like Todd said. Uh, I'm still continue, I still continue to struggle with trusting God and making him Lord of my life, but the tools that I've learned from this journey are ones that I will carry for the rest of my life. I learned how to recognize my struggles and to fight them by refocusing on Christ using scripture, spending daily intimate time in prayer and confessing my struggles to, and sins to God and community. That and community is a big part too. <laughs> um, I learned that my true purpose, which is to keep my eyes on him, remain connected to the source, and through that, I don't have to have everything perfect, he will direct my path. John 15, 4 says, remain in me and I also in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. If you desire to mature in your faith, have ever been hurt or are struggling with sin, ask God if this is the time where he wants to get you go deep, get you to go deep. Um, our church offers regeneration as a, a pathway for discipleship through care and recovery, but it's not the program that will save you. It's the work of Christ that Christ will do in you as you surrender yourself to his word, his spirit, and his people. My name is Randa. I have a new life in Christ. I'm in recovery from fear of man and pride.
So as Brian and his team come up for our closing song, I just want to encourage Randa. Um, that girl, she's come alive. I mean, I've, I've seen, we've grown up, essentially, much of our life together. We've seen our families. We've seen our flaws. But to see who Randa is daily becoming is a beautiful sight to see. She is helping lead. Uh, I'm eager to hear what she has to say and the work that God is doing in her life because it is sincere, it is real, and she's having a tremendous impact in the lives of people around her. Uh, we have small groups that she's a part of, and it's not uncommon for Randa to be the ringleader to say, hey, uh, let's go do this together. And she's opening up her life and inviting others into that. And I really see it as an evidence of her living out her new life in Christ. So praise the Lord for that. Let's stand and sing together. So let me just encourage you to simplify everything that we've talked about this morning. If you could do one thing this week, here's what I would ask you to do. I want you to take time this week to really think about and understand the importance of what it means to live out of your identity in Christ. Because I think so many times as Christians, especially us who grow up in the church, we're trying to live up to the expectation of who we are in Christ instead of living out of the accomplishment of what he did on our behalf. It's a totally different life. Because one, you never measure up. The other one, you live out daily in his grace and in his mercy. So if you think about one thing this week, think about that. Think about what it means to not live and be defined by your weakness and failure, but live and be defined by what Christ accomplished for you. So let me pray for us and we'll close. Father, thank you for these sweet people, this family, brothers and sisters in Christ, these visitors that are here, and we pray that they feel a part of who we are as a family of God. And Lord, as we go about our week, I pray that our individual conversations, our, our conversations within our small groups and communities over coffee, over lunch, would just take a little time to focus on what it means to live out of the identity of what Christ accomplished. Not to try to live up to expectations that we never meet, but to live out of realities that have already been accomplished. We are holy and blameless in your sight. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are a royal priesthood. We are a child of the King. And Lord, may we live out our lives believing that's true. By the power of your Holy Spirit, the truth of your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.